You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we talked to the world-famous Jim Meehan about starting PDT in Hong Kong, the potential of guest bartending, and his experiences in New York versus Oregon. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, I'm Jim Meehan, the founder of PDT in New York City. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you here in Singapore. I heard that you haven't been in Asia for four years, which is quite remarkable considering how much you travel. No, no, not in Asia. I've been in Hong Kong quite frequently because we've opened a branch of PDT there, but I haven't been to Singapore, I think, in about four years. So what is your role in PDT right now? You opened the first one and how are you related to the new openings? How much do you have a say in it? Or Yeah, so I, as, as you said, I opened PDT in New York in uh, May of 2007 and uh, ran it as the sort of general manager up until about a little more than four years ago. I, I moved my family to Portland, Oregon. And for those of you who aren't Familiar with the geography of the United States, it's uh, about the same distance as London is from New York uh, within the United States. So when I moved, I promoted Jeff Bell from head bartender to general manager. And, and we've sort of both mentored A.K. Hada from one of our, our favorite bartenders to our head bartender. And so while I remain on the, the daily emails and make reservations and, and sort of communicate with the team, to be honest, they're... They're, they're running the day-to-day, uh, and, and about a year and a half ago, after a very successful pop-up at the landmark Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, the Mandarin you know reached out to us and asked us if we'd want to open what we did for our pop-up permanently, and we negotiated and came to an agreement and opened up about 13 months ago uh, in the same space above Mobar and, and the landmark Mandarin, and that was a project where Jeff and I worked on everything from, I mean, thankfully we had the design and concept that my partner Brian Chabero and I created in New York 12 years ago, made subtle improvements with designer Nelson Chow and Richard Ecubus and the team there. And I serve a somewhat similar role, you know, on, on daily emails and kind of there for inspiration and to magnify uh, and amplify our what's going on there. But, but Adam Schmidt and Malika Suarez, who were, you know, really talented colleagues of ours in New York both left our bar in New York to to be the GM Malika's our GM and Adams our head bartender and they really are are driving the bus there so it was a very organic thing was it like it wasn't that you were planning on expanding it was more of an occasion and... not at all i mean as it's strange i'm 42 years old right now i started bartending in 1995 as a 18 year old and as much as I didn't grow up uh, planning on being a bartender when I grew up, uh, I sometimes say that sometimes you choose life and, and let, sometimes life chooses you. That's obviously not my quote, but I very much feel that the situations and circumstances of my life have not always chosen me explicitly, but have presented opportunities that I've taken. And so with respect to PDT in Hong Kong, this very successful pop-up, uh, led to that opportunity. It wasn't something where we knocked on the door at the landmark and said, hey, would you be willing to let us open a bar here? You know, fortunately, the pop-up went so well that the opportunity came about. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your first bartending job. How did you get to start bartending? It's it's sort of a funny story. I was in college at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It's a University about two and a half hours north of Chicago, where I grew up. And I oftentimes describe my sort of early years back then. I was a little bit of what I call a meathead, which is uh, I played sports and, you know, sort of I was unsophisticated in many ways. My brother, on the other hand, uh, you know, played guitar and smoked pot and uh, was more of an artist. And so I was in, in, in college where I actually sort of became, I unmeatheaded myself. I, I was, I had always planned as a kid that I wanted to be a lit, I wanted to write books. There was a, an author in the U.S. when I was a kid named Michael Crichton, who wrote the TV series ER and who wrote Jurassic Park and wrote all these best-selling adventure novels. And what was cool about him, in addition to his books that I really liked, was that his background was that he went to medical school and he was a, a, an emergency room doctor. And so I always had dreamt that I would, I love this idea of being a doctor and a writer. 
And so I went to the university and I was taking my literature classes and taking my chemistry and math classes, which were prerequisites to a pre-med certification. And a friend of mine named Andre Wright was working as a bouncer in a bar. And like probably many college students, you know, I went to college thinking that I had everything I need and quickly realized that I needed more. Uh, My parents, we didn't come from a wealthy background, so I got a job. And so Andre got me a job as a door person at this bar called State Street Brats. And it was great. I, I, a lot of my friends at the time were like, why are you working on Friday and Saturday night while we're all out partying? But for me, it was, I was basically getting paid to be at a party. And granted, I wasn't partying. We weren't drinking there. But I soon realized that I, I love this industry. I loved being involved in these bars. And I, I quickly transitioned from the door to cooking and then from cooking to bar backing and then bar backing to bartending and bartending to managing. And by the time I was 20 years old, you know, two years later, I was the shift manager. Um, eventually, I needed the job for more than just beer, money, and books. I needed to help pay for my tuition, too. So um, I worked nearly full-time throughout college to help pay for college and my cost of living. And when I was 22, the sort of pre-med dream kind of came to an end with organic chemistry and calculus. And as I started interviewing my friends, parents, and, and other people who I encountered at the bar, I realized that a lot of the guests who came to my bar who worked what I guess we could call a quote-unquote real job were unhappy. They, they seemed to like hate their jobs and hate their life, and, and their, the best part of their day seemed to be when they came and visited me at the bar. And I loved the, the work at the bar. It was, it was physical. It was creative. I met people from all different jobs and industries, and, and I realized that I, I was working in a position that I enjoyed, and, and I met so many people who didn't enjoy their job, and so I decided when I was quite young, 22, that I'm, that I'm going to just stay in this business. And it was a sort of unusual decision for someone in college at that time in the 90s, but I figured I would, I would rather be happy than be wealthy or, or to take a position that, that looked you know, maybe smart on paper that wasn't going to lead to a fulfilling life. So for, from that point onwards, at what stage did you realize that you wanted to open your own place? It's interesting. Back then, I feel like as I learned more about the industry, I had always thought that the ultimate end goal of every bartender must be opening your own place. You know, And I moved to New York City in 2002 to um, after seven years in, in Madison, Wisconsin, because in some ways that that opportunity was I saw it as quite a bit of a challenge in Madison. Madison is the it's where there it's like the main university city in Wisconsin, but it's also the state capital. And so I worked in multiple bars and ran a couple. And what I found in Madison was that because of the the sort of importance of the university and the state capital being there, there was a lot of politics to opening a restaurant. And the I feel like the university and this and the city we're always sort of intervening on how to open your bar. And my brother Peter moved to New York City, I think in around 1997. And I remember driving him out there and then I came and visited him once or twice a year. And I just loved it. I love the energy of the place. I love the diversity, the culture, the history. Uh, and as I started reading more about the industry, I knew there were all these kind of great old school bars and bartenders, which I'd hoped to, to learn from. So I moved to New York in 2002, and, and that's a whole probably long story that would encompass this whole podcast. But I began pursuing this dream as sort of like wanting to open my own bar. And, and I worked, um, no one would hire me as a bartender in 2002 because I didn't have two years of New York City bartending experience, which is thankfully an old thing, which has pretty much gone away. Uh, so I worked in restaurants. I, I, I worked at a restaurant called Five Points, which is now Vicks and trained as a waiter so that I could eventually get behind the bar. And then I, from there, I fell in love with wine and almost sort of sidetracked on to becoming a sommelier. And then in 2003, I went to Milk and Honey for the first time. And that experience really validated this idea that being a bartender was the right move for me. And I uh, began pursuing my, my sort of cocktails in particular much more seriously. Uh, from Five Points, I moved on to a restaurant called Pache where the owner's made a special position for me. They let me be the assistant wine director and bar manager. So I got to write the cocktail menu and, and I also got to help the wine director with our wine program. So I worked three nights on the floor as a sommelier and two nights behind the bar as a bartender. And that was where uh, I got my first sort of national and international media. One of my drinks 
the Montenegro Manhattan, which was made with Montenegro Amaro, was named like one of the drinks of the year in Bon Appetit magazine. Uh, and I was my one of my other drinks, the Pantelleria, was was in the New York Times. And from there, it's funny that was the year that Google Image Search was created, two thousand four. Okay. And a friend of mine, Rob Willie, was editing a a book that I eventually took over called the Food and Wine Annual Cocktail Book. And I knew he was communicating with people like Tony Abaganim and Dale DeGroff and Julie Reiner and Audrey Saunders. And I'd heard about this bar called the Pegu Club. And I asked Rob if he could invite Audrey to come try my drinks at Pache. And at the time I Google image searched her. So I knew she was. And one night she actually came in and I knew it because of Google. And she came in with a friend named Rob Oppenheimer who runs Pegu for her now. And they ordered just wine and dinner. And, and as their mid-courses that I sent them came out, I begged her if I could make her some cocktails. And then she let me make all my drinks. And then I went up to Bemelman's Bar, where she was uh, managing the program, which Dale DeGroff ended up turning over to her. And uh, she interviewed me. And then we went out for a night. And then she ended up hiring me. And I feel like Pegu probably didn't open for maybe another almost year. But that was sort of my big break. And from there, I, I worked at the Pegu Club for two years, about two and a half years. And then from there, I got the opportunity to open PDT. And that originally started out as a consulting project that morphed into a partnership with, with founder owner Brian Shabero during the opening process. So that was sort of the 2007 was the moment when I was first offered the opportunity to be an owner. Looking back at your uh, Milka Honey experience that you mentioned, what was it that made it so special so inspiring for you for me it was everything um that i was taken there by the manager of a uh, a restaurant across the street from where i live called wd50 the gentleman's name is eben freeman who's a brilliant bartender and innovator in new york city he knew joseph schwartz and the guys at milk and honey and got us a reservation for those of you who've never heard of the place um, they had a secret phone number that they used to change about every three or four months they, they literally changed their phone number And this is before social media or anything. So like you literally had to know the phone number, which was hard enough. And then the place was only by reservation. So we were able, Eben knew them well enough to have the phone number. And then he knew them well enough to get a reservation. And then we went in and, and I'll never forget walking in and sort of, we sat down in the booth right next to the, the bar in the front room. And, and Joseph Schwartz, who was our waiter at that time, who went on to open up Sasha's second project, uh, Little Branch, was our waiter and Toby Maloney, who ended up being the head bartender at Pegu Club with me and has gone on to open the Violet Hour and Bradstreet Cafe and, and the Patterson House and many other great projects. He was the bartender. And Joseph came over and, and his method of ordering the drink was really this sort of choose your own adventure style of drinking where he would say, you know, pick a spirit, pick a style of drink, and they would they would choose and create a drink for you like a tailor would. So the experience of going to Milk and Honey was the experience that I've later discovered since I had never been to a real tailor at that time in my <laughs> life. I didn't have much money uh, of going to a tailor and having a piece of clothing made for you. And granted the these were recipes that they had created, but the, the drink that Joseph recommended and Toby made for me was the gold rush. And it was basically the whole experience. This gentleman, Joseph Schwartz, elegant, knowledgeable, approachable, confident, uh, coming to the table in a full suit with a silver tray with a candle on it and dropping this, you know, frozen drink on a dental napkin and a frozen old fashioned glass with a hand carved piece of ice cube with this effervescent bubbly mixture of bourbon and lemon and, and honey that was served with a steel straw. And I remember just thinking to myself, like I'd never had a drink like this before in my life. And it made me realize that I had a lot to learn, but it also made me realize that there was much more uh, opportunity with this kind of drink that I had just experienced at Milk and Honey than there was with wine, which was entrenched and well-established and required, you know, years of working under the right sommeliers and, and the sort of really expensive certification that seemed out of reach for me at the time. Did you pick up any clues from Milk and Honey in, and transfer them into PDT when you opened Very it? much so. PDT, I never worked for Sasha and while I knew Sasha and while Sasha knew me and we, we chatted from time to time, I will, I will not, I would never say that Sasha and I were close, but I think what really sort of inspired me about Milk and Honey was, um, I mean, there were, everything inspired me about Milk and Honey, but the, the things that I brought into PDT was first and foremost, the quote unquote rules and uh, Milk and Honey had 
what were called the rules that were posted in the bathroom. And the rules were, were everything from things like, you know, sort of somewhat colloquial things like no star fucking, which had to do with, I think in the early days of milk and honey, celebrities would come in and people would sort of ogle them or want to go over and talk to them. But I think the things that were really big for me was that he, he literally had written rules in the bathroom that said that men should take their hats off when they walked in and that men should not approach women at the, at the bars. And, and, and if, and if, uh, a man would like to speak to a woman, the woman would have to oblige. And, and there were, there, there was a rule in particular that was something along the lines of that, you know, you should never invite anyone to milk and honey that you would not invite to your own home. And even down to like how you should proceed when you leave the bar, you know, leaving it quietly so as to not disrupt the neighbors. And it's hard to imagine right now, but before Tinder and all the dating apps changed the the way that humans mate most mating went on in bars and restaurants uh and certainly it went on in churches and gyms and and on you know in business outings but bars were were the you know ground zero of mating and it was a, it was a ugly business at that time you know it was the amount of time as a bartender you spent trying to either facilitate people meeting or trying to prevent people from meeting was a huge part of your job in addition to changing ashtrays and a whole bunch of other undesirable aspects about bartending. And what I loved about Milk and Honey was that it was very much a sanctuary for women and for also for the men who were there with women who didn't want to fend off uh, would-be suitors after you went to the bathroom. But it was a very, I love the ethos and the sort of, sort of the how socially disruptive Milk and Honey was. And so when I opened PDT, I didn't open with rules because I was very aware of the fact that in New York, you can't tell a New Yorker what to do, just like you probably couldn't tell a Londoner or even a Singaporean what to do. So I called it etiquette. And I didn't use Sasha's rules. I I, I just talked about this idea of etiquette. And, And I think that as I look back into the legacy of Milk and Honey, certainly these great drinks and the hand-carved ice and the level of professionalism of his bartenders is something that we'll all remember. But I can't stress how socially disruptive this place was for, for bars and bartenders. And, and in my opinion, how civilized it was. So fast forward, you're opening PDT. How did you come up with the ideas, uh, the concept, uh, the very iconic phone booth? To give credit where credit is due, my, my business partner, Brian Shabero had worked on PDT with his childhood friend, Chris Antista. And essentially, Brian opened Criff Dogs, a, a sort of very creative, uh, sort of punk. It was more of like a skate punky type of uh, type of hot dog stand in the East Village. And it opened right around 9-11. So really sort of tough year to open. And fast forward to 2007, the neighborhood was beginning to change a little bit. It was still a little bit rough and tumble, uh, but there were a lot of bars in the East Village, but most of them dive bars and kind of party bars. And Brian had acquired a liquor license at the hot dog stand. And acquiring a liquor license in the East Village was and is a very difficult thing now because there are so many bars and the community board, which regulates who gets licenses and doesn't by recommendation to the state liquor authority, is very picky about who gets liquor licenses. So at the time, it was nearly impossible to get a liquor license, but Brian already had one through his hot dog stand. And so after speaking with his landlord and with his lawyer, he realized that the space next door to him in the same building, 113 St. Mark's, was a bubble tea lounge that wasn't doing well. And so his lawyer advised him that if he wanted to take over the lease for the bubble tea lounge, he could... And if he wanted to turn it into a bar, he could. But if he wanted to serve liquor in it, you couldn't have a separate street entrance. You would need to have an entrance within the hot dog stand. And so Brian and Chris came up with the idea of instead of just having an, a portal from, you know, even a just an end, you know, a sort of opening in the space that they should socket with a, a phone booth, you know. And, and the design of PDT, if you actually look at it, was almost focus group from a lot of the top cocktail bars at the time. So the banquettes are very reminiscent of the banquettes at Milk and Honey. The herringbone wood panel ceiling is very similar to the straight panels at Death & Co. And the bar is very much by design a 
a classic it looks like a classic irish bar you know it could be it would it would look you know right in common with a, a brunswick bar and in, in a sort of in an old tavern so i give brian all credit and where credit is due with respect to this idea of a phone booth uh, a speakeasy you enter through a phone booth and, and what my role when chris and brian brought me on was really to sort of kit outfit the 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 bar with the station so you could make the drinks and they had never run a, a, a cocktail bar. So my job was to buy the spirits and to design the stations and to hire the staff and train the staff. And then I worked with Brian on the idea of serving hot dogs through a, a window, a portal between the counter at Crift Dogs and PDT and, and work with him on the idea of taking reservations for the tables and leaving it open for walk-ins. Um, so the concept, the operations was really in large part, and, and certainly the menu was a large part me, but the concept is very much Brian. How much do you think uh, of the success of PDT initially was due to the phone booth idea? I think that when I was younger, I probably was too stubborn or too proud to to admit how how much how big the phone booth really is for the business. But I think as I have had enough time to really sort of take it all in, I I feel like that phone booth is is the sort of gift that keeps on giving. And I, and for me, I don't to personally speaking, the phone booth to me is is never it's kitschy you know it's it's a low it's low humor it's it's not high concept but it's it's fun and i think it's remarkable and it's it you know there's still no marking on the street there's still no marking in crift dogs and i think that the this idea of the bar being something that you have to know about harkens back to milk and honey where you had to, you, the street, it's an unmarked bar on a, you know, 134 Eldridge in this sort of dodgy street in the Lower East Side. And you had to know about it. And I think that in our sort of social media saturated world today, the concept of a bar that you have to hear about mostly through a friend is something that I think is quite appealing to a lot of people. So when you opened that, what was your main inspiration behind the menu itself? Um, my opening with the opening menu is pretty modest. I, I, we had an 11 drink menu when we opened and I think eight of the 11 drinks were classic. They weren't like classics that people had all heard of, but they were sort of like B classics that maybe I thought people should have heard of. And it was interesting when we opened, there wasn't like a stable of cocktail bartenders to hire in New York. And so my opening staff at PDT was a lot of people who we're working at the six other cocktail bars in New York who couldn't get enough shifts. And so it wasn't necessarily the A-team when we opened. And it, and what, what blew my mind was initially I was just worried that this staff was going to be able to make my drinks. And, and immediately they started crushing that. And then they all started coming up with some of their own drinks. And then we quickly expanded from 11 drinks to 13 drinks. And then within three, four months, we we expanded to an 18-drink menu. And, and, and our first year, we switched the entire menu seasonally. So 18 new drinks each season. And then it was around year one where I realized that there were certain drinks like the Benton's Old Fashioned that people kept coming back for and asking for again and again and again. And I realized that this idea of changing the entire menu every season was like pulling the rug out from under our guests. And so we, we began to sort of create like a sort of stable set of drinks, drinks like the Mezcal Mule or the Paddington or the Shark that people can come back for any time of the year and, and sort of enjoy. And then we kind of kept the creativity going through some some more hyper-seasonal drinks. So how long did it take for PTT to, to get the international recognition that they had eventually? Um, I don't recall like an exact moment. I think that one of the biggest early sort of features we got was a, I think it was either a travel and leisure or... Um, one of the big international travel magazines listed PDT among amongst its best bars or nightlife destinations in the world. And I remember it was fascinating. It was a big deal for us because it was a kind of a, a list that, that was looked at. It was an international list. And I remember the, what they wrote about us was that, that it was a very small sort of like a picture of us with like a, like a short couple sentences. And what they wrote about us was that PDT is this great bar hidden bar where you can go and try drinks from great bartenders from all over the world. And at the time of our 18 drinks, three drinks were always friends and family drinks. So, you know, we've had, you know, drinks from guest bartenders or drinks from like local bartenders, like, you know, Audrey or Julie or whatnot. 
And I just thought, yes, I'm proud of the, the bartenders that have come and worked at our bar or of the friendships I've made in the industry and, and the drinks that have been shared with us. But what a shame that what PDT is now, uh, you know, being celebrated for is not the work of my, my team, but the work of my friends and guest bartenders who'd come through. So that was, that was the end of my guest. Uh, that was the end of the friends and family menu and the beginning of really sort of really trying to look at what we did there and what we did well there and uh, really focusing on that as opposed to trying to incorporate what everyone else was doing around the world. How do you think guest bartending shifts have changed uh, throughout the years? You mentioned that you were hosting some of the time, but now do you see them as a necessity for uh, a successful business? Um, I would say for me, no. I mean, I think that the one of the reasons why we hosted those shifts in the beginning is merely because the cocktail world was so small back then. And, and so it, it was, and it wasn't something like PDT doesn't have social media. And so the guest bartending shifts really weren't about promotion. They were about sharing knowledge. And I think that that, I think sharing knowledge was something that was very important back then. And I think it remains really important now. So when I say that I don't think guest bartending shifts are necessary, I'm not saying I don't think sharing knowledge is necessary. I, I, I think I'm just saying that guest bar shifts done properly, I think can be great. Um, but guest bar shifts, if everyone doesn't understand why you're doing them, can be a problem. And I think the thing that I realized from that travel and leisure feature on us was that in some ways, when you have a guest bartender in your bar, the message you're sending to your consumers and to your staff is, hey, come tonight. There's someone who's great, who is so good that we're going to tell John or Jack or Jane to take the night off so they can work the station. And, and I think for me, I had a belief at a certain point where I didn't want someone coming in to distract from how good my own staff was. That being said, the early guest bar shifts that we hosted were helped to us create a community that was beyond just our neighborhood or our city and created an international community. And I think for myself, my own personal learning, you know, I, I'll never forget having Marion Beck behind the bar, having, you know, Wayno San behind the bar and just watching what they did behind my own bar. One, one story I told my staff before I left Hong Kong was one night, we had Charles Vaxenat bartending at PDT. And Charles was the head bartender, I believe, at the Lunsdale, which was opened by Henry Besant uh, and Dre Masso and Nick Strangeway. And Nick brought him over to open Hicks. And, and he was the head bartender at Hicks when Nick opened that. And the program at the Lunsdale and the program at Hicks were revolutionary in London because Nick's view has always been that the cocktail is, is actually historically comes from London, not from New York. And, and Nick has always been frustrated with the way cocktail history has always been slanted towards American bartenders as opposed to the great British bartenders and, and innovators like Dick Bradsell and others. And so Charles, even though he was a, a giant French bartender, was part of the like, DNA of London cocktail bartending and a friend. And I'll never forget one night when he was working, it was his first guest bar shift. I think he worked probably four or five shifts over a few years. And Charles is probably like six, four or five. He's a really tall guy. But the door at PDT does not face the bar. And it's probably about 15 or 20 feet away from where the point bartender stands. So it's not close. And that night, when a guest would walk through the door and be greeted right away by our host, as soon as they turned around and faced the bar... Charles would look up and smile and say, good evening, and welcome them. And it blew my mind, A, that this 15-foot, you know, sort of distance meant nothing to Charles, and B, that, that as a bartender who wasn't even on my team, he felt that it was his, it was comfortable and natural and proper for him to welcome every guest that walked through our door, even from the bar. And it was something I think that, had I never seen Charles Vexen at 10 bar that way at PDT, I don't think I ever would have realized that you could do that. What I do find is when I hire new people, I always ask them, you know, I've been here for so long that I can't see this place the way you can see this place. You can see this place with fresh eyes with for the first time. And you're going to be able to see things that we do and things that we don't do 
And if you see something you think we can do better, if you see something that I'm missing, please bring it to my attention. And I think that's where guest bartenders can really sort of open your eyes to the potential and possibilities of your own bar. You mentioned that the community at the very beginning was uh, smaller. I knew everybody. I mean, I think it's really without sounding like I'm some mafia boss or, or <laughs> you know, I really, I either knew everybody or or I knew that I knew one person that who was very close to them who could introduce me. And we knew, and we knew each other. And we didn't know each other because we followed each other on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We actually knew each other. You know, all the bartenders in New York were trained by Sasha or... Julie or Audrey or, you know, Jay and Dushan, you know, or, and there are obviously others, but those were, that was the main trunk of the cocktail tree or for in New York, it would have been Dick Bradsall and, and, you know, you can fill in the rest of them, you know, but it's, it was small. It was intimate. Do you think this was the foundation of uh, what is Tales of the Cocktails now? The fact that the industry was so small and was like, I don't know, how, how did the Tales of the Cocktails came to be? Um, Tales, I mean, I think that I was probably showed up at Tales three or four years after it started. And it, it was it was started by Ann Tunerman, who at the time was leading tours of, of New Orleans. And I think she hooked up with the sort of like real pioneers in America, the Dale DeGroff and David Wondrich and, and Ted Hay and... and Audrey Saunders and Robert Hess and, and, and sort of they got down there. And, and I think in the beginning it was, you know, as I said to the, the bartenders earlier, like the, these are like very early days that were very nerdy. And I think the, all of the people that I just named are very historical oriented, you know, nerdy people who are, who are almost working like anthropologists to try to discover this like lost history and culture of bartending and so certainly new orleans has one of the most storied histories of cocktails and in a weird way in cities that are very trendy like new york things can kind of come in and come out and maybe even almost completely disappear but new orleans is very traditional and historical so rye whiskey and drinks like the french 75 and the sazerac and the ramos gin fizz they never disappeared down there and i think in some ways the long-standing history of cocktails down there. I, I, I oftentimes say to people who are thinking about starting a cocktail week or a cocktail conference, one of the be- reasons why Tales, I think, has been so successful is because New Orleans is a convention town, so there are tons of hotel rooms, and it's it's an old 19th century city that was set up before highways and, and kind of cars began to spread everything out. And it's a place where people for way long for you know way longer than I have been alive have come to party very very heavily you know and, and I think that it's one of the only cities in the world where thousands of bartenders could come and be less debaucherous than all of the tourists and business travelers who come there we sort of all disappear there and and New Orleans in July is is off season so you can get a cheap hotel room and there's really inexpensive places to eat and drink and lots of hotel space to do seminars. So I think that uh, New Orleans is kind of the perfect place to host a history-minded cocktail convention. And how do you think that it's evolved throughout the years? It's certainly changed uh, from being this kind of very small, intimate, almost like family reunion type gathering to being more of a traditional professional trade show. But I think it's just gotten bigger. And I think for those of us who were there in the early years, some of us are more comfortable with that growth pain, you know, of sort of things getting bigger. And, you know, nowadays when I go to BCB or I go to Tails or I go to some of the cocktail festivals, I no longer don't know everybody. I don't know most people. And and sometimes, especially more and more frequently, they don't know me either, you know, like, and so it's, once again, you got to fight for your meat, you know, but I, I still think Tails is a, especially under the new leadership. Uh, I went this year, Tails was acquired by a, a New Orleans family and, and this year's gathering was quite intimate and I think it was very well done. How involved are you into the organization of Tales of the Cocktails? Not at all. Not okay. at all. I have nothing to do with the organization of it at all. I've, I think I've been every year for the last something like maybe 12 years, but um I am not involved. I actually also don't even really pitch seminars. And oftentimes when I, whenever I'm on a panel there, it's because someone chose me to be part of it. I find that I got involved in this business because I love the bars. And I think that speaking is something that 
it's a great honor to speak in front of groups of bartenders or at trade shows. But for the most part, I feel like my primary responsibility as an educator, operator, and mentor is to my staff. So I'm keenly aware of how much time I'm spending at trade shows and versus how much time I'm spending with the people who day in, day out are doing things to help make my life better. You have uh, had your fair share of awards. Do you think that uh, there is a monetary value to the awards nowadays? And are they helpful to kickstart your business? I mean, for me, I feel like I we won the awards very early on, you know. So for me, um, I won American Bartender of the Year in 2009 and International PDT won International Bar in 2009. We won our James Beard Award, I think, in 2012. And we were amongst the first bars to win these awards. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier, the cocktail business was very small. Very The industry was very small back then. I mean, we're still relatively small compared to the entire hospitality industry. And so for us, especially with a small bar... When you only have 40 seats to fill, you know, we're full every night, you know. So I would say that certainly an award now as the industry has grown would greatly benefit PDT in Hong Kong if we were to end up on the, you know, 50 best bars in Asia or, or, you know, God willing, the 50 best bars in in the world. But when you're been around for a long time and, and you only have 40 seats to fill, there's not a lot of way to monetize it. I think some of the bigger bars, you know, the Atlases, the Manhattans, the Dead Rabbits, the Nomad bars that have lots of seats to fill certainly benefit from that recognition. But I would say that any bar or bartender recognizes from from this recognition. You know, I, I feel like it's, I think for me though, I guess it's just been important to understand that these awards are, they're a privilege and they're a thrill but they need not be validating, you know, that, you know, this isn't a business that you should enter to win awards. It's, and, and the awards, for those of you who are wondering, aren't going to make you rich. You know, what will make you rich is working hard and, and, and taking care of the bottom line. We talked about uh, briefly about you moving to Portland. What was it that made you decide that Portland was your next place where to I knew uh, at a certain point that I had to leave New York. You know, when I moved to New York, it was... Right after 9-11, nine months after 9-11, and the city was in a bad place and struggling in many ways financially. And I feel like my 12 years there was part of the rebuilding of New York. And I would say that looking back on it, I'm good at building things. I'm good at helping to create cultures. But once they kind of get big, I don't know that I'm the necessarily the best person to make them bigger. And I think certainly... I could say that about PDT in some ways, like my experience there had run its course and, and in Jeff and in some of the, my other colleagues, I, I was confident that if I leave, that there was enough of my sort of values that I had imparted that they could run the bar, you know, maybe not like I run it, but they could run it well without me. And more importantly, my wife and I had a kid and what I found was I lived in Manhattan. Most of my friends by the end of my time in New York had lived in Brooklyn, but you know, we lived in a $3,000 a month apartment and because of the kid, we were going to need a $4,000 a month apartment. And my wife worked in hospitality. And so the chef of the restaurant she worked in expected her to come right back six weeks later and work 12 hours a day. And to make a long story short, we just didn't make enough money to, you know, live a normal life there. And so I began as I traveled to like visit, as I visited other cities to wonder, you know, could I live in Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles or Dallas or, you know, wherever. And I, and I found in Portland, Oregon, I had a few good friends and Sean Horde, who was one of my sort of early head bartenders at PDT and Daniel Shoemaker of Teardrop Lounge and Jeffrey Morgenthaler of, of Clyde Common and who just, I liked them. I liked the way that they, I liked them personally and I liked the way they ran their bars professionally. And I've always loved the Pacific Northwest. It's a beautiful place in America. Portland is an hour from Mount Hood, which is one of the only mountains in America that has snow year round and an hour from the beautiful Pacific coast. And we're, you know, near farms and great hills and and places to hike. And and I, even though it's a sort of town, a sort of small town, it has a great food and beverage culture and, and a lot of creative people come there. So I sort of, ran the idea by my wife and kind of eventually slowly got her to sort of go with it. And, and about four years ago, we got up and left. And, and as I look back on it, it's it was probably not the best decision for my career, but it was a great decision for, for my family and for myself personally. And I feel like it's, I was 
I was running out of gas in New York. I think that the lifestyle in New York uh, is full on every day. And I feel like I was glad. It's funny, and, and not to, uh, to equate or conflate myself, but the end of my time in New York was also around the end of Derek Jeter's time with the Yankees. And <laughs> I think as a someone who watches sports, I mean, we've all seen athletes who – you know, they play a couple years too many, you know, or they stay in the game a little too long. And, you know, the last couple years, they're not who they were. And I just, I remember Derek Jeter retiring and granted his numbers weren't great in his last year or two, I'm sure. But like he retired, like you look at the way Dwayne, I don't know for anyone who follows American sports, but there's a basketball player named Dwayne Wade, who's retiring right now this year in basketball as well. And it's, you watch these guys and it's nice to see them, you know, not be riding the bench the last year of their career. And so for me, I left before I feel like it was obvious to everyone that I was, I needed a break. I needed a time to catch my breath. I needed a time to uh, work on myself personally, work on my family and and sort of re reorient my values so that I could, you know, be successful for the next 20 years of my career. Have you ever thought about opening a bar in Portland? Uh, that I actually also moved to Portland to open a restaurant with a friend. And sadly, or or not sadly, but just for what it is, after about a year and a half of working on this project with him, you know, we sort of, he's actually now a very successful chef in Portland and is, he's got two restaurants I love and he just opened a third and, and he's doing well. But what was interesting is that after, you know, talking about this place for quite some time, I came to the realization that while I loved his food and I loved his aesthetics, and I loved, you know, a lot of his vision that that we didn't necessarily agree on on some important financial matters and some some important operational matters. And so at a certain point, I went to him I'm like, you know, I I love you and I love this, you know, I, I I wish we could do this together, but I just feel like if we can't even agree on what success looks like, this this sort of might not be best. And he sort of went on and opened something similar to what we were talking about that I actually love. And while I sort of, you know, some part of me will always wonder and wish that that would have come to fruition, I sincerely believe that, you know, opening bars and restaurants is very similar to getting married. You know, you know, your your chef partner or your business partner in the bar is a lot like your life partner and your wife or your husband or your partner. And for me, I think you have to be you have to be in it for the same reasons, like you have to be able to set similar goals and we weren't able to do that. And, and four years into living in Portland, I've kind of gone through the full range of emotions about opening a business there. And really until I see an opportunity there that I think that I can do something which will make me happy, that will be financially successful, I'm in no rush. You know, I, I feel like in some ways it's nice when you can reconcile your personal life and your professional life in the same city. But until I can do that, I'm, I'm going to sort of let things come to me. Let's look at the, the future now. Where do you see yourself in like, say, 10 years from now? I think the most terrifying thing for me to confess is I'm not sure. You know, and I think as I look back, I'm 42 years old. So, of course, depending on how old some of you think you're going to be, I'm, su- I'm supposedly at that midlife crisis time. And I think that, you know, as, as I look back on my career and who I've modeled it after, you know, the Dale DeGroff is the, the sort of Yoda of American bartending. And I certainly have had the great privilege to, to know him and work alongside him at times. And I mean, Dale, I mean, and I'm not putting, Dale has never said this to me, but by observation, Dale is still figuring it out. You know, I think we're not all, there's no one path to success and what success may look like to Dale or, you know, to, you know, Steve Schneider and I were catching up. What success may look like to Steve or to I may be different things. Certainly there'll be a lot of overlap because we're in the bar business. But I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. I mean, where I'd like to be in 10 years um, is running running bars. I, I, I do a lot of things. I, you know, I, I do the, I have the grapefruit soda, which is why I'm here with East Imperial. And I have Banks Rum, which kind of has me all over the world. And I do the drinks for the... America's Rest Centurion Lounge, and I have a bartender bag and a PDT cocktails app, and I write books, um, and I have other sort of collabs coming out. I help pour and whatnot, but I feel like for me, the my the thing that most inspires me is the bars, and so 
hopefully 10 years from now, I'll have a bar open in Portland and my kids will be, you know, in high school and, and I'll, I'll be financially well off to be thinking about where to send them to college and, and, you know, we'll be a little bit more settled. But to be honest, I don't know. And I think that that's both exciting and terrifying, you know, and honest. Speaking about the cocktail book, what made you decide that uh, you wanted to write a book? I, going back to that original, you know, being a kid and wanting to be Michael Crichton and write best-selling adventure novels and be a doctor. I mean, unfortunately, I was weeded out of the doctor path by the, by the studies, but the, the book path remained open. You know, my brother is a great writer, food writer, who's written a few books and is in the food media in the U.S. He's the, now the director or the sort of editor of the L.A. Times food section, and he helped create a very influential magazine called Lucky Peach. Um, and... So Peter was got his hands wet with writing and was able to introduce me to that guy, Rob Willie, introduced me to Audrey Saunders. And I met his editor, Kate Crater, who got me involved in the Food and Wine cocktail book. And then I met a friend of actually Steve Schneider's, Anthony Giglio, who got me involved in Mr. Boston's. And by the time that I had the opportunity to publish the PDT cocktail book after winning the big awards, I had edited 15 cocktail books and I had written for publications like Sommelier Journal and, and Food and Wine and, and Liquor.com and, and Tasting Table and other publications. So I was writing. And I certainly I wasn't writing best-selling books like Michael Crichton, but I was writing. And I think that the both the PDT cocktail book and Mian's Manual um, gave me the opportunity to sort of scratch that itch of being a writer, of trying to express myself through words. It's funny, I, I meet people like yourself and many people in our industry who English is not a first language. And many of my favorite bartenders speak two or three or four languages. And for me, I struggle with my one language. But I think writing is is a way to grapple with communicating myself. And I, I don't think I'm, it doesn't come easy to me and I don't know that I'm very good at it, but I do enjoy having written. And, and I do feel like the books have been offered me an opportunity to extend my reach and my values beyond the experience that people can have at my bars. What would be a recommendation that you give to a person who wants to open a bar nowadays? Because obviously things have changed a lot, but you know, you've been in the business for a long time, so you've seen things, right? Yeah, I would say that going back to me as a young bartender, I remember in my like young, you know, mid-20s that I said, I, you know, I want to open a bar by the time I'm 30. And having been involved in every level in the bar business now, I would just say that the exciting thing about our industry now is back then the the only path that I could foresee for myself was to open a bar and be a bar owner. And now there are opportunities in brand ambassadorship and the brand ambassadorship jobs have opened up, you know, marketing positions and sales positions. And, and there are, there are, you know, companies like Proof & Co who, who are the reason, one of the reasons why I'm here um, have opened up opportunity in dis- distribution and importing. And there are, you know, opportunities in hotels, as, as you are a great example of. There are opportunities in creating products. I mean, I've, as I said, I've, I've helped create a, a rum brand and now a grapefruit soda, but there are, there are bartender bitters brands and gin brands. I notice you have Eric Lawrence's birdie shakers downstairs. There are bartender tools. Um, there are lots of bartender entrepreneurial oriented jobs that are available. And, and so what, what I would, I also, you know, caught up with Blake Walker earlier. uh, And I would say that the idea that being a bar owner is the, is the epitome or the apotheosis or the, the greatest thing you could do. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Having been responsible for a bar, do you really want to get the call on Friday night that the toilet's backed up? Or do you really want when the building taxes are reassessed to have to pay more. You know, owning a bar can be uh, debilitating financially, emotionally, psychologically. You know, if you could take a job as a corporate beverage director for an international hotel group and get to do all the f- a lot of the fun stuff but never have to worry about uh, some of the harrowing stuff, that, that's a great opportunity. So I would say the exciting thing about today's day and age is that there are many paths. And as a young bartender... I would consider all of them and and I would certainly consider bar ownership. But I would, as I talked about with my opportunity in Portland with the chef, you know, there are key elements of owning a bar that if, if you don't think that those elements are going to go 
that you can drop everything you're doing at Friday night and go down and fix the toilet, then maybe owning a bar is not the best opportunity for you. And that doesn't mean you're not, you don't have a lot of potential in this industry or that you're lazy. It just means that maybe you value your Friday night more than I do or, or than other bar operators do. So we live in exciting times and creative times and with many opportunities. And I would, I would say that all of them are interesting. Closing question, if you could choose a, a very last drink, what would that be? Wow. Your, your very last drink. My my sort of desert island sort of cocktail for when I was younger was probably the Sazerac. I always loved the Sazerac cocktail. Um, honestly, I if I had one last drink, I have no idea. Uh, you know, I, I guess the question would be who, who would it be with? You know, would I be drinking it on my own? <laughs> Uh, and what would be the nature of my death? You know, would, it, would I be being beheaded or would I get the poison or would I just be taking a nap and then never waking up? But I, but I would say that it would depend on who I was with. I find that as I've gotten older that and had the opportunity to drink some pretty cool things in my life that, you know, drinking cool things will never not be cool for me or not be special. And, and I certainly enjoy them. But who I'm drinking with kind of matters more. And if I happen to be in that moment with my dad, my dad wouldn't, he doesn't understand what preflux or a cognac is or old, you know, closed distillery scotch or Japanese whiskey. So, so I would say that that last drink would depend on who I was with and whatever made that person I was with more comfortable, whether it was a glass of water or a cup of tea or a shot of espresso or a Banks rum daiquiri would, would be more important to me than the liquid itself. Thank you so much for your time. It was amazing talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jim. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our hashtag how-to classic cocktail videos where every Tuesday we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.